Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 74 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am coming to you from San Francisco with a very special guest. Justin Lin is the 44-year-old Taiwanese-American filmmaker best known for directing the Sundance sensation Better Luck Tomorrow, then four installments over eight years of the Fast and the Furious franchise, and now for succeeding J.J. Abrams at the helm of the Star Trek franchise. Star Trek Beyond, the third film since Abrams rebooted the film franchise, opens on Friday. Over the course of our conversation, Lynn and I talk about his youth as an undocumented immigrant growing up in California, about his desire and his struggles to get authentically diverse films made in Hollywood, about his 20-year collaboration with the actor John Cho, which spans Better Luck Tomorrow all the way through Star Trek Beyond, about how he manages to handle all the CGI, VFX, and action of big blockbuster films without losing focus of character and story, as in an arthouse film, and what it's been like for him to enter the Star Trek universe, which was a great comfort to him as a child, and which he has now taken to, well, bold new places in a variety of ways, from blowing up iconic set pieces to identifying one of the principal characters as a gay man. We, of course, get into lots more beyond even that, so I encourage you to check it out and get to know one of the hottest young filmmakers in the business. Without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. To begin with, we just always ask for the record. Where were you born and raised, and what do your folks do for a living? I was born in uh, Taipei, Taiwan, and my family immigrated to the States when I was eight, 1980, and they owned this little fish and chips restaurant that they had for uh, 26 years, which opened every day except for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. um, and uh, from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday, that was the that was the only time they made any any money is when all the Catholics show up. <laughs> so you were probably old enough to remember now the move to America. What was that like, and how did you learn the language and make friends and all that? It, it was definitely pretty. I wouldn't say traumatic. I mean, it was because we always had each other, you know, but it was, I was old enough to know that I didn't know how to speak the language, you know, and, you know, back then in uh, in Orange County, we were the only Asian American family. Really? So I remember, yeah, we, I mean, now it's like the Skateway is a Korean church and, you know, there's <laughs> Asian Americans everywhere, but we were the only Asian American family. And, um, and I remember it was a really great school. I went to this Dickerson elementary school and, but they didn't really know what to do. So I would, they would put me and my brother in the room, and we'd watch Sesame Street. And uh, I think they bring Ray Klug, who's half German, half 
Korean uh, who's still one of my best friends. Uh, they bring him in to try to like talk to, <laughs> talk to <laughs> us and translate. <laughs> but but it was a they were great people. And um, you know, as kids, you know, my parents worked a lot. So during the summer, they uh, they took us to the boys club, Buena Park Boys Club, and that's where um, I think I learned you know a lot of the language. You pick it up pretty quick. And I you heard know. you were were you into basketball as well. I wasn't until because it was when we went. Um, it was it was just me and my brother, and it was a pretty rough area, you know. Um, Brenham Park was kind of a working class uh, parts of Orange County. It's not your classic, when you think of Orange County, that's what it is. And I remember um, Bob, who worked at Brenham Park, he was coach, he put me and my brother on the team. And it was a ju- you know junior high schoolers, and you know, and uh, I remember we just sat on the bench the whole season. In the last game, I still remember it, like they put me in, it was a blowout, and me and my brother, and, and the ball, someone dribbling went off their foot, and Went in right in my hands, and I sh- shot it and went in through the hoop, and I was addicted. <laughs> and I practiced every day. It was like, right. it was one of those moments, you know, when you went back to school, everybody wanted to, you know, it's suburbia, USA, and everybody plays soccer. And right. there was that one moment, the finding moment, where I was like, no, nah, I'll just go play basketball by myself. <laughs> and I just practiced all year, and I went right. back the next year, and I just got better. It was just addictive. Nice. Well, one of the things that I, I read in preparing for this was that you also – like a lot of people who have come to this country from somewhere else had to live with a certain amount of fear as a child because, as I understand it, your parents came and overstayed their visa, and so there's always this fear that you might be, or at least until yeah. a certain point, that you might be deported, right? I, I didn't understand it. I mean, we were supposed to go to Paraguay and then move our move into Brazil, Um and we came here for vacation. They kind of, uh, they got kind of got talked into buying the fish and chips restaurant, thinking they they get a visa. So it was weird. We were kind of paying taxes, but we weren't citizens. I remember I really wanted to go to San Diego Zoo one Thanksgiving, and my my parents took us. And there was a checkpoint on the five. It's not there anymore. I think you can mm-hmm. just drive by. But I, I thinking back now, I, I think it was nervous time for my parents. But they really kind of did such a great job of keeping us. Yeah. Away from it, you know. And then eventually that went away with the with the Reagan amnesty in eighty seven. Oh, it was, it was a big moment. I still remember standing there at the uh, L.A. Convention Center with my dad, uh, my brothers, and my mom. They got sworn in uh, at a different ceremony, but it was a big moment for us. Sure. Was there a sort of specific moment when you realized you were a creative person, a, a creator? I love to draw. I think as a little kid, that was the one thing that empowered me. I just, I would always just draw. And I think that was, you know, at elementary school, I was the, that kid that would win all the poster contests. That was my identity, yeah. you know? And uh, it, it got me through all the rough times. And I remember when we moved here, you know, we went from kind of, I, I would say probably middle class to, to working class. And and my parents were great. They always made sure we had food on the table, but definitely compared to my friends and, you know, growing up, they, they had everything. They had all the Star Wars toys. Right. They had all the... And we, we shot the Goodwill. But the one thing that always kept me going was I always felt like, you know, as long as I can create something visually, I just need a pen and a paper, you know, and that, that was very empowering. And also, ironically, wasn't there something involving a toy car? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was It was one of those things, one of those times where I was just seeing that all the other kids had all these toys. So I went and uh, stole, I stole the little toy car <laughs> and I thought I'd be able to get by my little brother who was five years younger, Jimmy. And uh, he he ratted me out right away. And uh, I mean, it was one of the scariest moments of my life. It was my dad, you know, he goes to work at 10 a.m. He comes back at 10 p.m., you know, and he shut down the store. He came home, dragged me to the 
to the store and you said, whatever they're going to do with you, you have to, you have to take it. And <laughs> it's, it's still the, one of the most traumatic moments for me in my life. Um, uh, but he really taught me that, you know, you, you don't do that. And the, and the result though, was in a sense, you were, if you wanted to play with cars, you were going to have to make you got, it yourself, right? You make it yourself, you earn it, yeah. you know? And, uh, I ended up again, Ray Clug, who had, you know, he was the kid that had everything. And, uh, <laughs> I remember I built this little ramp, just wood and nails I found in the garage and, and, uh, he saw it and he's like, oh, that's cool. And we raced and he ended up just trading three cars for that ramp. And uh, <laughs> it just triggers something in me, you know, the entrepreneurial side in me. Now, were movies or TV a big part of your life as a kid? No, well, we, we didn't go to movies. I remember when E.T. came out, it was so big that my parents actually um, took us to a late show. It was like a, I think it was like a Tuesday night at Cerritos Mall. And they, they you know, we went there and it was, it was just like the five of us watching the mm-hmm. movie. But that, that's how rare it was to watch movies. You know, it was expensive. And it, it, as a kid, I just didn't have any money. But Star Trek, then TV, that was something that was very present. You know, I mean, that's what we watched from, you know, they came home, they closed the shop at 9. We had dinner at 10 p.m. And we watched Star Trek, uh, wow. the original series at 11 on Channel 13. You know, that, that was from 8 to 18. Wow. Yeah, that was, that's, that was our family time. And when, for you, did the idea that you could be the guy making this kind of programming, whether it's a film or a TV show or whatever, when did that first occur to you? It didn't really. I mean, I, I was just really immersed in the sports. I mean, I, it was something that really was great. You know, I, I felt like I had some great coaches, you know, and they were like disciples of the John Wooden principle. And it was all about like really attention to detail, efficiency, and just really upping your game and just practicing your game. And, and, and talk is cheap, but like as soon as you walk on that court, the way you play is who you are, you know, and uh, I really bought into that and I loved it. And I played it in junior high, high school, but it was around kind of um, high school that I saw two films. It was Tucker uh, by Coppola and uh, and Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two films that really got me thinking, wow, there's this there's storytellers behind behind these films, you know, because before that it was just going to friends and. You know, they want to see Bachelor Party or something right. because it's, you sneak in the rated R movie or something. <laughs> but I think even before that, I think as a kid, Rocky Three was the right. was a big one for me because it, it really kind of like really understanding and, and being exposed to this notion of underdog. That was pretty amazing. I remember walking, I think I was in fifth grade and walking out and, and wanting to do one-handed push-ups. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, it, and, and you mentioned do the right thing. I guess it occurs to me now that maybe that's why... Fight the power. Oh yeah, very much. Star, Star Trek Beyond. That yeah, opening with Rosie <laughs> Perez. It always stuck with me, and right. it was it was a great time, you know, because growing up in the '80s in suburbia, it really was just you're just getting the Hollywood movies, and you know, for those two films to somehow like appear, you know, and, and to break the fourth wall, and, and just a lot of the styles and just the look, it really got my attention yeah. that you can tell stories differently. And it really kind of just, I guess, with the teamwork and sports and also just my love for kind of art, it all kind of came together. So how did you wind up getting your BA and MFA at UCLA, you know, pursuing film directing? And how did your parents who had been doing sort of more Mm. practical things with their lives feel about this, this career direction? Oh, my parents were, you know, I know there's a lot of stereotypes of Asian American parents, you know, um, but they really did. They, they, we had a good life in, in Taiwan. They kind of gave it all up for, for me and my brothers. 
I would just throw crazy ideas out there. Like I want to play in the NBA, you know, and, and they're like, yeah, go for it. Yeah. You know? And I, I, I remember I'd go practice till midnight because we, we lived across the street from park and our backyard was attached to, to a schoolyard. So I would go play in the schoolyard until it gets dark. And then I would just switch over to the park and I just play all night. And they have always supportive. When I told them I wanted to try film, I mean, I could tell, you know, they're hardworking, you know, working class parents, but there was not a lot of resistance. They, they wanted me to at least try it, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think this is like um, late 80s, you know, I graduated in 90 and uh, film school is not what they, it's like today, you know, it was, it, it was really hard. There was no internet and you just kind of like, you, you know, I remember I would try to get as much info, mm-hmm. but, but there wasn't a lot. And it was just, you just knew about USC, UCLA and NYU. I was always a big John Wooden, Lou Alcindor <laughs> fan. <laughs> and that was the reason. <laughs> and I, 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 I did go visit, and I know USC was just, it's a private school, and we couldn't afford it. You know, I knew that. And UCs were really affordable. I mean, I can't believe, you know, I think a quarter was like $300, you wow. know, <laughs> back then. Not and anymore, yeah. <laughs> not anymore. Um, but it was, uh, they, this, the, it, what was great was that the program started junior year you know and so I went to UC San Diego for a couple of years and I applied I, I didn't understand how hard it was to get in <laughs> until I got in but it was like they took in 15 from UCLA and yeah. 15 outside so and why do you think they took you did you have work that you could show them or did what was the deciding factor well what I, I ended up being on the admissions board at UCLA so I learned a lot and what I really I appreciate about that program is you know, it, it was about trying to find your voice, your point of view, you know, and it wasn't about your having um, any kind of work in film that you're going to submit, you know, and I, I think everything was written. So again, I, I thought that was a really kind of fair way yeah. to assess because, you know, I mean, there's some people, they, by then they've been able to make all these movies, you know, and, but, but I think from, with my background, there was just no way. Sure. Um, so I wrote some plays and short stories and I guess, it had enough of a point of view or at least promise of it that that got me in. Now, at that time when you're there as a student, was the ultimate ambition to be making sort of big blockbuster movies? Oh, or no you, way. What was the goal? <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that first quarter. Uh, I took Bob Rosen's class, and it was like, you know, you got to go to the media center and get the laser disc, and you get to watch like Clockwork Orange and all the Altman movies. <laughs> and it was it blew my mind. I, I, I was in heaven, you know, just, and again, I think the way the program, it wasn't about the business. And if anything, I think back then there was no connection to the business. You're in this vortex of just filmmakers. And, and also there's, there were a lot, there were a lot of great um, Eastern European professors there. And somehow I, it just clicked. I ended up in grad school, uh, Jerzy Anchek, he has his fluid master class. And Joe Russo was actually in that class and was a seven of us, you know, it was it was the best class ever, you know, because you just you literally go in the soundstage with a dolly and a and a camera, and that's it. And you have to break down every scene dramatically, and then you don't you have to justify every move, every lens choice. It was it was you know to me that was what like really hooked me. So you come out, and I guess after a little while, you end up co-directing your first movie. Was this Shopping for Fangs? Yeah. And, and this is like a from what I understand, I can't say that I, I had a chance to see it, but like basically an Asian American werewolf tale? Is that, <laughs> is that a correct characterization? Well, I was still in school and, and uh, I was an undergrad and, and my friend Quentin Lee, you know, he, I ended up being a cinematographer for his film and that was one of the great th- little tricks that I had was that I love being DPs for films because 
you know, you get to be on set, you yeah. get to help tell the story and, and it was somebody else's budget, you know? And so I, I always wanted to be on set. I remember my first short film was $4,000 was 10 minute non-sync film, you know? Mm-hmm. And I worked three jobs just to pay that mm-hmm. off. So to have the opportunity to be able to shoot other people's films, any opportunity I had, I would go and shoot. And Quentin Lee, who was a really good friend, you know, he came to me and I, I guess like months ago I had joked to him about, you know, Asian Americans and males and hair. Because I, was, <laughs> I, I had some roommates and, and for the first time in my life, I've, I, 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 I could grow a beard, but they couldn't grow anything. And it, <laughs> it was just a little joke. And, and Quentin is Canadian and he somehow took that joke and applied for a grant and got forty thousand dollars. That was to me forty thousand dollars could have been four hundred million dollars. Right, I couldn't believe we right. were going to go make a movie. So we didn't know what we were doing, and we went and got short ends, and we just put out casting calls, and and we met John Cho. He had just yeah. come down from Berkeley, and it was just a bunch of us. We shot it for I think it was like uh, fourteen days. Uh, made the movie for. Forty thousand, and wow. and we we I remember we had the avid for like a week, and so Quentin would, would edit from eight a.m. to eight p.m. and I would edit from eight p.m. to eight a.m. and but there wasn't that much editing because there was no coverage. Right. <laughs> but it was a good learning. Experience. It was a really good experience, and it got into I remember it got into uh, Toronto, and uh, Roger Eber actually came to the screening, and I was so excited I couldn't believe Roger Eber was coming to the screening, and I think it was like third reel, fourth reel, he got up and and left and never came back, uh, and. But it was it was such a great experience because I learned so I learned this idea of accountability. You know, I, I just remember sitting there before the screening. I wanted to run up to Mr. Ebert and tell him if I had more money, I would have done this way, I would have right. done that way, I would have done this, I would have done that. Then I realized it doesn't matter. It's still two hours of somebody's time, so there's no complaints. Like from that point on out, whatever I did, I wanted to be fully accountable. Well, and he, you you obviously won him over with your next one with with uh, better luck tomorrow. And I just want to ask before we even talk about that, why do you think you and John Cho hit it off and have continued to work together all these years since shopping for Fangs, which was twenty years ago, basically. It was, it was that special time where, you know, I think as an Asian-American, I, I think it's probably a little different now, but definitely back then, I think the, the industry was very different, you know. I think being an Asian-American filmmaker or being an Asian-American actor, um, there was nothing really to strive for, and uh, we were just out there in the uh, just blind. Really, I think I love UCLA, but the one thing when I was there, that there was no connections to anybody in the business. But I think, you know, I remember John had just come down from Berkeley, and I remember thinking, wow, he... He was going for it, you know. He he moved down and wanted to be an actor, and you know it, it was it was that spirit of of saying screw it, like mm-hmm. let's just go for it. It doesn't matter if there's no opportunity, but like if there's none, let's create our own. And if there isn't, then like if we lose, we lose. But like let's go out swinging. And that's really what you did with Better Luck Tomorrow, which I know was sort of controversial for people both at the just raising financing level, and then once it was completed and audiences and critics were getting a look at it. It was divisive for people who haven't yet had a chance to see that. And it, I guess it premiered at Sundance in 2002. What, what's the premise and why was that such a challenge for people to the extent that Roger Ebert felt inspired to defend it when it, when it did come under fire at Sundance? Yeah, I I think up till then, um, the, the films, especially with Asian American portrayals, it, 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 a lot of the films, at least I've seen, they were always there because the script requires someone to be Asian, <laughs> you know, and I, I, it always was 
to me, it was it was not pleasant to to growing up, and and you, you know you're either getting called Long Duck Dong or or some you know Bruce Lee knockoff or something, you know. And but at the same time, I I, I remember there was a case that happened, something that happened uh, in Foothills. Uh, it was called this honor roll murder, and it happened, and I it was baffling, you know. It was this murder that happened, and I, you know, I grew up. And I went to college and they talk about searching for identity. And I really kind of felt like that's what I was trying to do as a human being, you know. But having a chance to work with the youth who were only a few years younger than me, I felt like um, they weren't searching. They felt like they were kind of shopping for identity. And that was kind of the impetus for trying to put that project together, you know. And uh, I got together with my friends, Fabian and Ernesto, and uh, we ended up just kind of writing it. And I was working at this museum at the time. And when I felt like it was ready, I took 10 credit cards. And I remember calling everybody and say, quit your job. And they all quit their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had friends flying in from New York and everybody, you know, sleeping on my floor. And we went and, and made the movie. But I think at Sundance, it really kind of triggered that discourse because of the kind of ethnic politics. You know, I think the thing that triggered Mr. Ebert was that, you know, it, it was a white male who stood up and, and was accusing me of portraying my people in a negative light. And and I what I really appreciate what, what Mr. Ebert was saying wasn't that he was defending, it was that he was actually putting it in perspective, you know, in the context of, of the fact that we should be empowered to, to have a point of view and to be able to share that. Sure. Well, the movie ends up getting bought by MTV Films after being denigrated, from what I understand, by somebody at Paramount Classic, which was another place. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, Paramount, which I guess is the parent company of MTV, Sherry Lansing was running it, sees it, says she really loves it and wants to put it out through Paramount Classics, yeah. which you were not going to go for, right? <laughs> I still remember walking to Sherry Lansing's office. It's like the longest hallway <laughs> in the history of architecture, I think. Right. It felt like anyway. And I remember she was in the room with Rob Freeman. And uh, and it was tough because, you know, I, I was still, at that point, you know, I was still in debt. It was We were living the dream. It right. got bought. But, like, you know, it was still, I was in debt and... And it was so it was such a big meeting to go on the lot, and then um, and it was been it was sitting for months, like nobody see it. And uh, I think Arthur Cohen said he'd rather sell cigarettes to kids and release the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was just all this politics going on, yeah. and I just got caught in the middle, and I had no idea, you know. And uh, I remember going in there, and she was so excited um, because Patrick Goldstein had seen it and said, hey, "You mm-hmm. should check this film out." And it kind of changed everything. And so she, when she said she wanted to go through Paramount Classic, I, I, I stood up and I said, "Just there's no way. I mean, we were getting our ass kicked by this woman just this out of... This is Ruth Vitale, I think. Yeah, yeah. She, Ruth was... I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, to this day, I don't, I don't understand why we're getting bullied. If you don't like something, you yeah, know, just, just, let just let it go. Yeah. But, like, just really going out of her way to, to come after us. Um, so I just felt like, you know, I'd rather, again, you know, it's one of those moments, you know, if it failed, I didn't want to have to question. But if this succeeded, I didn't want to contribute to her <laughs> career, you know? Uh, so in the end, it goes out through Big Paramount. That oh, was, yeah. Uh, it, it worked was, out. Oh, was, I'll tell you. It was, you know, I remember at, at UCLA, I watched all right. the big movies at Man National, and I remember walking by, and there's right. Bear Like Tomorrow. Right. And like, Holy. <laughs> so that goes out through Paramount. Then you do Annapolis, which is a, the first big studio-funded yeah. movie, right? It was really interesting, because at that point, you know, I, I, I was writing, and, and but it was also just a struggle because even though I was kind of living the dream, it was still, you know, you're still trying to pay the bills. And, and, uh, 
and Better Luck Tomorrow was great. You know, it got everyone's attention. But I remember I would go to meeting after meeting after meeting, and it felt like everybody just kind of wanted to meet mm -hmm. to make sure that they met that guy from Sundance. Right. <laughs> but nobody was really like, you right. know. And I, I was hearing back a little bit. It just, I'm sure they were they weren't quite sure if I was ready to make a bigger budget movie, if I can actually deal with quote unquote real actors, you know, and that's, that was the, that was a kind of two, you know, double edged sword of doing a, a no budget movie. I think the climate's probably a little different now, but back then it was, it was really rough. And I remember reading Dave Collard's script and really kind of um, being able to relate to the character. And uh, I went in and to meet with Nina Jacobson at Disney and it was the best meeting. I mean, she, she really got it. We connected and she said, let's go make the movie. And I, I couldn't believe I was going to be able to make another film, especially at a studio, yeah. you know, and it was, it was a great experience. And really that was the bridge between Better Luck Tomorrow and the Fast and the Furious films yep. that you did because so, so after Annapolis or during Annapolis, I don't know, you're approached about doing the third Fast and Furious film. So I just have to ask, had you seen the first two? If you had, what were your thoughts? And, and just this idea that now this is a franchise now that you're getting involved with at a studio, not just even only a studio movie, but all that comes with that. Well, so I guess just in short, how did it come about and what were your thoughts about getting involved after the first two? I remember I was in film school when I saw the first Fast and Furious and it was interesting. I was TAing actually this documentary class. And I remember doing that class, a couple of the, the students, they were shooting this footage in, in, out in the desert of, of like all these car car races and stuff and i remember talking to them and it was like little like it was the imports against the you know domestic cars and i i remember asking them like well why don't you just go get a domestic car and they're like no it's pride we're gonna you know you know we're gonna do all this aftermarket stuff and and it was i could feel like there was a there was like this culture that was really developing and then i heard that there was a movie so i went to go see it and i i remember because when I was working on it with the, you know, the documentary with the students, it, it was also the other thing that was fascinating was a lot of Asian Americans were part of that scene, you know. And I remember when I went to go see the, the movie, you know, all the Asian faces, they were just the bad guys <laughs> and stuff. Um, to this day, I still remember the energy, you know, didn't matter how I felt about the movie. I remember it connected with the audience. It was at the uh, Santa Monica AMC, and I still remember. And that's what's so great about movies sometimes It's just... Being able to share that energy and just experience that energy, you know? And so kind of cut to, uh, I don't know, that was 2001. And 2005, I mean, I was actually still shooting Annapolis um, in London. We were finishing up. Franco was over there. And we were just shooting a couple of days there. And I get a call from Jeff Kirschenbaum from Universal. I think up to that point, Annapolis hadn't come out yet. I guess there was a lot of buzz about this indie kid who could actually direct, you know, and I found out, I found out years later, I think I was talking to, you know, some people and they're saying that they had budgeted Annapolis at 50 million and I was doing it for 20, but 20 to me was <laughs> yeah, you were more. Thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so I think there was some good buzz out and I think at some point they wanted to, they didn't have the stars, but they didn't want to do something with the title. Mm -hmm. I think they wanted to be a bit more edgy and indie. Um, and so they, I went in, um, at first, I didn't want to meet. I said, ah, I'm not. I read the script. I'm not. I'm not cool with it. I'm good. I was actually really kind of just ready to go back to doing an indie movie, you know. Um, and uh, he said, no, no, no. And Kirsch talked me into uh, meeting up with Stacey Snyder. And when I went, when I got back to the states, I, I sat down with them, and you know, she told me. She, I think she was kind of surprised that I was saying no, <laughs> and I didn't know. Why. <laughs> and she asked me why, and I told her why. 
And she thought about it. I remember she said, okay, well, you know, why don't you take it, do whatever you want with it. The only catch is you're shooting in two and a half months. (laughs) (laughs) Not knowing anything, I was like, you know, okay, I can do that. I can change the tone. I can do, you know, and and she kept her word, you know, and... And so the focus was now more on family and less on stereotypes and all of that. Also, just a sen- I think the sensibility of the franchise, and also just I, I felt like the the characters. You know, I, I again I, I kind of won't go back to that documentary class and just watching those kids. There's so much pride and passion for those cars, and I think what, that's what Tokyo Drift is that culture. I wanted to respect that culture, and even though you're going to Japan, I didn't want to do the, you know, the the kind of usually kind of the Hollywood eye mm-hmm. of of, of you know, trying to exploit all the exotic aspect, you know? And so, um, and we had a great time doing that film and, um, it kind of just, I think in a way, it, a lot of people, their entry into the franchise were, was through that film. Yeah. So four films and eight years later, <laughs> uh, and a lot of money at the box office, uh, w- looking back on, on that period and those films, what was that learning curve like where now for the first time you were you were called on to deal with real action and special effects and CGI and stuff like that, which has obviously been stuff that you applied in Star Trek yep. Beyond and other things. What was the learning curve of how to do that like and what is it like in, to have to direct when you're directing sequences that in many cases aren't in front of you in the yeah. way that they'll be there on the screen? You know, again, I had great... I had a great studio and I had a great time and I, I don't think I would have done four of them. You know, I think part of, for me, I have to feel like I, I, I'm, I have an opportunity to grow and evolve. I remember standing in 05 trying to talk Vin into doing the cameo and I was told there's no way. I mean, we, we pretty much, Kirsch and I like climbed this fence and <laughs> went into his house and talked to him and, uh, and I remember we talked for hours and I was talking about his relationship and the mythology we can build. And it was just, it's been so fulfilling to be able to actually do four movies and everything we talked about mm-hmm. it, it, by his pool actually all came to life. And that was pretty amazing. But one thing I really, I have to say, I, I, I in the eight years in the four movies that I tried to really kind of um, keep is, is process, you know, I, I, I still remember vividly, you know, the, the high you get when like on Better Luck Tomorrow, when you go on there, you know, you look on set, you look at the actors, you look at everybody, PAs, everybody. They're there because they believe in you, they believe in the project, or they believe in the script. And there's no money. And I remember, you know, my, my parents' old house, they had moved out, and I asked them not to sell it, and that became our headquarters, and just sleeping bags. People would just be sleeping there. And that spirit of kind of filmmaking, I believe you can do that on a big budget scale. And so culturally, that was a really interesting shift because I, I was going into these big budget areas and, and there's people who have done it for years and years. And sometimes I felt like some people were kind of just clocking in and out. You know, if you say, hey, I'm going to need a car crash here, they're going to say, OK, I'll get you one. And they go and do it. And I, that's not acceptable to mm-hmm. me. You know, I feel like, you know, we're being well compensated. If anything, we should really push each other and challenge each other. And um, and so it was really kind of the struggle at first was trying to really kind of move, remove the the money of it all and just try to kind of hopefully recapture the passion. And I'm not judging anybody. I feel like people can do it any way they wanted, but when I'm on my set, like I, I like it when everybody is there because they want to contribute and try to make things better, no matter what we're doing, you know? And 
and that took a that took a little while i think culturally to 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 shift and logistically though i mean is that it's a different yeah. skill set than you'd had to apply or even know before it is it is but it's something that i take a lot of pride in you know i mean it's it, i know i i drive people nuts but like like Spiro on Fast Six, you know, in London, he would. I get a call from him three in the morning, and he's like, "Ah, oh, I know we talked about the sixteen millimeter, but can we let's try the eighteen And and that's that's the way I like working. Call me at three a.m. You know, <laughs> like that's that's filmmaking. Right. You know, and 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 again, I, I'm not judging how other people do it, but I like looking at movies where it feels like there's a singular point of view. You know, I think sometimes with the big budgets, there's a lot of people, so it can get lost. It could get lost, and I think to get in that room first with the studio on that very first meeting on, on what that movie is and then not really veering away from that and then making sure that every department head were on the same page. I mean, it's very repetitive and, and it's a lot of meetings. And, and But also I think with time, you know, I, I, I have now a group of people that, you know, that I've grown with and, and our culture now is, is now driving it. So that's, if I look back, you know, and I look at this movie especially, that's something I'm very proud of, you sure. know. I think with a lot of the logistical challenges to, to, to this Trek experience. Um, there was the group of people that came together, you know, everybody went above and beyond. Uh, shortly before Trek, and I think after you'd declined to do the last of, or the seventh Fast yep. and Furious, you had, somebody had asked you, why, you know, why are you not going to do this? And I, the quote that you said was, I guess you'd just been able to help your parents retire early or you'd at some <laughs> point, And you said, quote, now I can make choices that I wouldn't have been able to make in the last 10 years. Close quote. What did you mean by that, and how then did you come to Star Trek? I think what I was trying to say is that you know I take my op- my options very serious. You know, um, I think I came from a place of nothing, and uh, it was amazing to be able to. I think once I did Tokyo Drift, I, I called my parents and say, you know, shut down the the restaurant, let's go. You know, um, and so Fast and Furious has been really good, but I. Again, I, I don't think it, commerce or business is ever like anytime I try to make decisions based on that for me personally, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, for me, I think I left that Fast and Furious because I, I just felt like at a certain point after six, it, it, it was I couldn't there's none of the story I want to tell. I, I couldn't grow anymore, at least at that point in my career. You know, I needed I needed other challenges and. And did uh, them. You did in that time, True Detective and all these yeah. uh, some other episodic but Star Trek to go back, were you oh, prepared yeah. to go to a big, <laughs> another big, big thing? I was actually ready. Um, I was working on the script for the L.A. Riots movie, which I, I've been wanting to do for a while. Yeah. And, you know, I, Spike Lee had worked on it at Universal. That was the one I really wanted to do. Um, so after True Detective, uh, I was going to go jump into it. And I was actually shooting in Ventura when I got a call from J.J. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, and you guys already knew each other? No, no? I, didn't, I know him. I just, my phone rang and it was JJ and he asked <laughs> me about Star Trek and it was a Thursday. And I, I said, uh, I said, yeah, it was part of my life. I hadn't really thought about it. And I said, let me finish shooting. Let's meet up Monday. So for three days, you know, I, I was thinking about it. And I remember the drive home from Ventura back to LA. Um, it just brought back all of this, these feelings, you know, I didn't, I didn't even realize how much it was a part of me. And so I called my parents and I said, hey, can I have dinner with you? And I, I drove to their house and we had dinner. And that night, the three of us, we were having dinner. And I, I, that's where I realized I got I to gotta do it. It was, a, it was a very special moment. It was actually very personal. I mean, I've been making movies now for 15 years. And I, I have to say, I think this is probably the most personal movie. You know, I think Bear Like Tomorrow was more observational. I think 
Fast and Furious was more about like myth and character building exercise. And this is actually something when I when I decided to do it, it was it was an emotional choice. Just so personal because of your history with the material and your now you can put your twist on it. You're, yeah. You can boldly go where you want to go with it. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I'd I never thought, you know, even when the reboot, I love JJ's 09 and, and just his 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 whole universe. And, and, you know, I just was enjoying it as a fan. So for to get that call and, and to, to really have his trust and, and it, it really meant a lot, you know. And that being said, it was kind of it kind of went back to. <laughs> the Tokyo Drift conversation. It was like, oh, great. You know, you can be bold, take it, you know, and make it your own, but you're shooting in six months. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, because that's a crazy turnaround time here, and especially considering the amount of, the fact that you didn't really have a story at that time. You had to, all the VFX, all that. For you, the way into it, though, from what I've read, was really just kind of blow up the iconography <laughs> in a sense, right? Well, I, I, I like to think that, you know, I think it's been 50 years, and when I was thinking about it, I thought, well, why do we love Star Trek? You know, why is there so much passion for Star Trek? So kind of the seed of the idea was to maybe um, deconstruct Star Trek, the Federation, and maybe certain philosophies. And, and, and through these characters that we love, maybe going through that experience, they'll reaffirm why there's been so much passion. That, that was what I talked to JJ about. And that's what I was talking to Simon and Doug about in, in the hotel room in London a couple of weeks later. I mean, it came to a very literal deconstruction by by ripping away yeah. the, the the Enterprise. <laughs> right. But that was that was the start. That was the start of what we wanted to do for Star Trek Beyond. There's been two topics of conversation since the movie's been finished, but before people have really seen it. Yeah. And one of them has to do with just this decision to present uh, Sulu as a as mm-hmm. a gay man, very passingly. But no, yeah. you know. And then also, the, very sadly, the story about what's happened with Anton. And yeah. so I just wonder for you, these things have been out there. I don't know if we've necessarily heard fully yet just your thoughts on, on these two very different yeah. uh, things. I think the, the Sulu of it all, it, it actually came from a place where I think because my engagement with the show has always been through the reruns. I remember like, I think probably the fourth or fifth time we were watching the episodes, my brain kind of would drift off to character moments outside what what you're seeing on the show you know almost and that's been with me since I was you know in my teens you know and and so one of the things when I sat down with Simon and Doug I said I really want to show you know moments slice of lives with them that that we don't for 50 years we really haven't gotten to see you know so that was very important to me and so I think I, in those conversations it led to Simon had the idea of Sulu and his partner and and I remember thinking wait that hasn't you haven't seen anything like that. And it, it felt like it was overdue, you know? Yeah. And, but at the same time, I, it was very clear to me that it, 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 it's really not a big issue for me. And it certainly is not a big issue in the Star Trek world. So that's the way we need to present it, you know? And I think John called George and, and he got a really weird reaction. So I called George and we talked and, and I listened, you know, and we had a really long conversation. Um, and I told him, you know, Hey, thank you. Appreciate it for the context. I will do what I think is best, you know, and so that that's where it all kind of came from, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, since then I think George has kind of went out and and he's kind of speaking and and sharing private conversation and kind of in a way I, I feel like is uh, misleading a little bit, but you know, it's 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 his it's his choice, but at the same time I'm 
I'm the gatekeeper on this one, mm-hmm. you know, and that's my choice. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, I feel like as a tribute to Gene Roddenberry, in the spirit of, of Trek, I felt like it was appropriate. And the Anton element? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think it's still, for me, it's still, I'm still processing. I think when it happened, it, I, I, I couldn't, I still, it's hard to believe, you know. I had just seen him a week before. He came in for to do his ADR, and, and we had such a great time. And it was always good to see him. He's, he just brings so much energy. I, I just love it, you know. In this business where sometimes the the bullshit, well, is there to try to crush you. You're always kind of fighting out. He just, nothing seems to get to him. He's such a great energy. And since the, you know, his passing, I, I you know, I was re- really in the thick of trying to finish the film. And there was a couple of days where I decided to just kind of go back and, and look at all the footage again, just to kind of, you know, just trying to process and didn't know what to do. You know, I, I think by doing that, it just brought back all these kind of great memory. I mean, there was just, these moments um, where he was on set, he's just so there and real. And that is so rare. And it sounds so, it, it should be like that. I mean, especially, you know, we're making movies. We're living our dreams. And, and, and sometimes things get petty and political. And he was never, he was always there, you know. And so talking to the cast and everybody, crew, and, and I, I feel like the way to, you know, to celebrate Anton is, is, is to know that, like, that will live on with all of us. You know, I know that will live on with me. Yeah, it's beautiful. You guys dedicated it to him, and it is nice to see him one more time. But I thank you very much for doing this. I'm so excited to see what's next. I hear about Space Jam, too. I, <laughs> I figure, like, one of these days maybe we'll see another little indie. And, but whatever. Oh, yeah, I'm working um, on that. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited on that. and big fan, so I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.